Our next part of our series on 1 John is found in 1 John chapter 2. I believe I was here last week. Am I right? Okay. I'm glad somebody knows. Um, good, because I'm serious. I don't know where I was yesterday. So, okay. So in view of, um, view of what we learned last week, we move on into a section uh, of assurance. We've seen that about the Apostle John. He comes at us with very clear concepts of truth, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And he challenges us and he pokes at us and he says, uh, do not sin. If anybody hates his brother, uh, God is not in These types of things which challenge us, don't they? They challenge us where we are in our hearts and that's good. They challenge us so that we'll continue to look to Jesus Christ. So that we'll continue to find him as a savior and as a help. And he also along with this gives assurance and sections where we're just simply we're simply to be brought to a sense of wonder and comfort in light of what Christ has done. Now, why do I reiterate uh, this? Because, as I've said, a good teacher repeats himself. And I know that that's true because Lloyd-Jones said it this morning when I was listening to him. And uh, while none, nobody agrees with, uh, with everybody on everything, I do gr- agree with him on this one. Because we need the teaching and preaching of the gospel constantly. And I'm not just talking about a formal worship setting like here. I mean preaching and teaching the gospel to yourself, to your own heart. This is why we need to be reminded over and over and over again. And the Apostle John does that for us. So without further comment, let me read for us, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. We all need encouragement, don't we? Life is full of so much, so many trials and tragedies. Uh, In our context today, there is a constant barrage of discouragement, far more so in uh, former days because of just the sheer information or ease of information we have at our hands. We know things that happen before the news even reports on it. This type of, of culture in which we live, there's constant there's a constant badgering, and it's so easy for all human beings, but especially Christians, to become discouraged. Not just discouraged with 
what's going on in the world, but discouraged with themselves. Living in this world and, and being frustrated. Encouragement is what we all need. We need encouragement just for everyday life. We need encouragement uh, from one parent to another saying, stay the course. This too shall pass. All of these things, we need encouragement to press on. But there is something that is central for the assurance and encouragement of that assurance for every believer. And that is that they are now a member of the family of God. And John speaks to this issue about what it means to be in the family of God. There's three things that we see in this passage regarding uh, familial names that we're going to look at step by step. First of all, children. Children. Now, notice immediately we see that expression from John again. Pastoral heart. Man probably close to his... uh, Close to, close to the 100 at this point or so. Lived an ancient, uh, long life. And so he's looking at the church and he sees his children. And he has a father, as a sweet, loving pastor who's been through it all. Addresses them in the way that is caring and loving. Because they know that this man has loved them as a father. And so he says, children... John wants his readers to know that their sins are forgiven. Now, the reason I say that in view of children is because there's a, there is a challenge with interpretation here. This statement of children very well may be the statement, since it's first, of all the family, all the children of God, which we then have a separation between fathers and young men. Now, that... When you read that, read that collectively. Fathers, mothers, uh, young men, young women. So it's the idea of those who are older and those who are younger. We're going to see this as we move on. So children here may be the idea of uh, children in the sense of uh, young people, but I'm not disposed to that interpretation. I follow the line of many who see this word as children as being collective for every believer. And no matter if you're a father, a mother in the sense of older in the faith or younger in the faith, you're a child of God. And the very things we see here say about the children give us a sense that he is clearly speaking to all believers. So let's see what John is saying to his children He wants his readers to know that their sins are forgiven. Look at verse 12 and how he says it. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Do you see the rationale there? It's the logic. He is writing to them, not in order for them to be converted. He's writing to them because they already are. And their sins are forgiven. He's saying, I'm writing writing these things to you because it's a fact. 
I wouldn't be writing this if it wasn't true. There's not a sense of I hope they are, hope that these are those who have had forgiveness of their sins. He says it straightly, plainly, and bluntly because. So important to hear. And not just to hear it once, but to remind ourselves of it over and over. Because we don't always feel forgiven, do we? We don't always feel that when we ask God for forgiveness, and no matter how sincere we find ourselves uh, uh, being towards God, we don't have the sense of peace, the sense of, of sins removed, the sense of, uh, of being washed anew by the blood of Christ. Past sins can often come to mind, the sins that haunt you. The sins known only to you and God, perhaps a few others. Past sins can come to mind, but not only that, not only in view of our sins uh, in general, but also we find ourselves not feeling forgiven because of false guilt. Those of you who have false guilt, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The idea of feeling guilty and guilty about something and you have no idea why you should feel this way because you can't figure of anything in particular that you did wrong. Or at least when you rationally think through it, you're guilty of nothing, but you feel it. False guilt. All of these things come in and undermine the the sense of forgiveness in our lives. But what do you know as a child of God? John says, you know this, that you are forgiven not because of who you are. Verse 12, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Totally takes the focus off of you, doesn't it? Takes the focus, takes the thought process completely off of you to Jesus Christ. And namesake, we need to realize that the word, when it refers in scripture to the name of the Lord or praising the name of God, it's not just simply saying the name of God or saying the name is, is wonderful and worthy. It's, it's saying that God himself is the reason. The name stands for the whole. So why your sins have been forgiven? It is for the sake of Jesus Christ. For who he is. Which means it's not for the sake of who you are. Take salvation, forgiveness completely out of your hands. And it puts it upon the back of Christ. Thousands of years ago when he was at Calvary. What we're really seeing when we feel this is we're seeing the fact that we are not realizing the confidence we can have. 
it's not a self-confidence. It's not a, an arrogant confidence. It's, it's not even about you. It's confidence in him. But you are confident that he is able to save you to the uttermost, no matter how you feel, no matter what you do. He is the reason that there is forgiveness of sins. He is the reason that your sins are forgiven. Because you have been forgiven, you know the Father. Verse 13 at the end, children are mentioned again. We write to you children because you know the Father. And regardless of any age, today, here, from the youngest up, if you believe, if you believe Christ is your Savior, you know the Father. Children. Now we, let's look at the word fathers here. John says the same thing to the fathers twice. He says to those who are apparently more mature in the faith, and including likely the leaders, that they have known him who is from the beginning. So this is seemingly to point to a greater sense of knowledge, having grown up in the faith, having wrestled over time with with sanctification and sin in this fallen world, you have an experience that you have gained in terms of the knowledge of the one who was from the beginning. Think about those who have walked with Christ for a long period, longer than, than most people in this room. So we'll just put it that way. And you have seen how the crucible of life has carved you and shaped you in good and bad ways so that you have come to know God better than at first. That you have come to realize what it means to be a follower of Christ when at first you were very naive, correct? You've come to know him who is from the beginning. Chapter 1, right at the beginning of this epistle, John says, He who was from the beginning, who was made life, the Word, you have come to know Jesus Christ as you have grown older in the faith in a way that has made you see his love for you more clearly and has made you more dependent upon him, and willfully so. Walking with Christ has become a personal thing. Your experience through crying out to him, through prayer, through his absence, seeming absence in your life at times, the dark night of the soul, period depression, whatever, whatever could have been, you have walked with him through this life thus far, and he has brought you through the fires of life. 
He has burnt off dross. And that makes them love him even more. Because he hasn't left them. And also he hasn't left them the way they once were. And they see that that's the greatest thing of all. They're more like Christ now. And less like what they were. You come to see the need of Christ more. You come to see the need of your Savior. And you begin to cling to him. More so than the passing pleasures of this world and this life. More so than the things we think we need, our security blankets. We begin to see that the financial situation we may or may not have has no bearing on what God decides to do. And no bearing in the end because he is the only one who can bring you through death into life. You're going to see that all that you have will fade away. Things being taken from you, loved ones dying, friendships that are no longer, all of the changes in life, all those things you went through and are going through, you come to a point at which says, you know, I'm just grateful that God has given me life at all and all the blessings that I have received. And I'm grateful even more for the Savior who has given me those things. Paul says something that really catches uh, the intent of what I'm saying here. In Philippians chapter 3, he's been talking about all of his greatness in terms of in the flesh. Hebrew of Hebrews, in terms of intelligence, he was unmatched. And all of those things are true. But he said, whatever those things were that were gained to me, I've counted them as loss for the sake of Christ. And he goes on to tell you more of what he means. He says, I count all things as loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Remember what John is talking about in chapter 2 here? Knowing. Knowledge is gained over time. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. And that word rubbish is actually a word that is used for sewage. Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Those who walk with God. Men, women who walk with God for long periods of time, for much of their lives, have realized that this maturing that has hopefully taken place is not something that you can rush. You can't rush sanctification. 
You can't rush growing in grace. One of the follies of youth is arrogance. Some, it's also still foolish for us old people too. But one of the follies of youth is arrogance, and I don't mean it negatively, I mean it in the sense of self-confidence that you can reach the point of holiness when you first become a believer. Ha! I thought the same thing once. And it's not that you can't live a godly life as a young believer. That's nothing. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. What I'm doing is talking and telling you about is that you can't rush sanctification. Just like a child can't rush its maturity and maturing over life, so you can't be a father or a mother until you've gone through being a child and a young person. Different seasons of life, that's my point. Different seasons of life. And it is the experience that you've gone through, the different crosses that God has given you to bear. Or the different sufferings that you have perhaps early on or that lie in the future. All of these things, all of these things teach us that we need him. We'll wear out, we'll lose stuff, we'll forget things like what we did yesterday. We need the everlasting one. Okay, so what do I want to say about that? I want every believer here, including myself, to desire to grow in grace. To desire to mature and learn and grow in the Lord. To not be overly confident to think that we're going to reach this, this height of an unex, unex, um, let's say unrealistic expectation. You realize you can't reach that ideal. That is what God is using to mature you. So pursue growth. Pursue it. Pursue godliness. Pursue a maturity. But also remember something. Be careful of self-evaluation. Be careful of being confident in what you know because as Paul Paul warns knowledge puffs up it's love that edifies and that will be the test of how much you are actually maturing in our Savior that his love has changed you And you become more loving to others. There's a lot of Christians that know a lot of things, but they're mean. And they don't come across as loving at all. No matter how bad our personalities might be in terms of, you know, some are real nice and some aren't. No matter how 
where we are on the spectrum, the love of Christ will change you. You will become more loving if you know his love through your, through your rough course of life. The mature heart in the Lord says, I have come so far, but I have so much farther to go. Young men, as I said before, this is speaking to the to younger uh, people in the church, both in terms of age, but also perhaps in terms, likely in terms of Christianity, of, of conversion. John says the same thing to the young men in two different verses. Verse 13 and verse 14, we see him say, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Then later in verse 14, he says the same thing, but he expands on it. He says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. Young men, young men have the ability or the youth have the ability to take more upon themselves. Uh, Ecclesiastes, it is good for men or humanity to bear the heavy burden when they are young. So there is a positive side of youth, right? And then there's a positive side of age, maturity, and yet a sense of vibrancy, vigor, uh, and youthfulness. Everybody has their place in the family. Everybody has their place. He says, first thing, that you are strong. I wonder how many young believers here uh, feel weak. Or even older believers, a sense of having a weakness. And uh, that weakness can become, uh, become such a central concept in our minds that we're forgetting that we are commanded or called to be strong. We're not ca- caused, called in a sense to become overwhelmed by our weakness. And our weakness is, instead, Christ says, yeah, they're there. I know them. I love you. Be strong and take courage. I've overcome the world. So when we, feel, when we feel that sense of I simply can't make it, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this period of time, I don't know what's going on or what the future holds, how can I continue? John encourages them. He says, you're strong. And the word of God abides in you. Now, when we read word of God there, the first thing I'm sure that pops up in all of our minds is scripture. Correct? Typically? Okay, good. We want to make sure that that wasn't a wrong statement. Got a few people shaking their heads, yes. The word of God 
lives in you. Who is the word of God? Jesus. The word of God thus far in John, chapter 1, the word, the word made flesh. John chapter 1 of the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's not saying that scripture abides in you because some of us can't memorize scripture. Some of us in history never had a Bible. We're spoiled. We have so much opportunity, so much access to scripture. So he's not saying that in the sense of Scripture, in, in, intent, or specifically, he's speaking about Jesus. You're strong. Why? Because Christ is in you. He is there to uphold you. He is there to guide you. He is there to give you strength when you turn to him and say, I need help. And the word of God comes to us through the words in scripture. And the words in scripture remind us over and over again that how can we keep our ways pure? According to the word of God. Which means the word of God, Christ being in us so that we can understand the word of God written. Overcome the evil one, we're told. You have overcome the evil one. The believer has overcome the evil one. This means that he has no ability to take hold of you. He has no ability to work inside of you in the sense of taking possession of you as a believer. That is not even in his ability to do. But what he is able to do is tempt. And when we're tempted, it's our flesh that takes over. And he can woo, and he can be extremely subtle. He can come as an angel of light, apparently looking as a a messenger of hope. But he's no cartoon figure, as Ian Hamilton once said. He's the ancient foe of old, of God and of man. But the believer has overcome him. Which means you've conquered him. You you are reigning with your king as those who have conquered an enemy in war. He's conquered. Now he's just running around trying to cause misery to the church. But you've overcome him, and therefore you have the ability through Christ to watch and pray and overcome when he tempts. We're told that... uh, no temptation, no temptation is suffered 
except that which is common to men. But when tempted, God provides a way of escape. And the spirit of Jesus Christ is there to give you the power as you seek him to flee that temptation. Before Jesus, you were a slave to Satan. He had you fooled. He had blinded you. The God of this world reigned over you. But Christ has changed that. You are a part of the family of God. You are no longer an enemy of God. And you still have that power to overcome the evil one today and over and over. And the, the, the key concept here for all of us, especially for the younger, is to fight on. We're so focused on instant gratification, so focused on getting a task done and say, okay, I've arrived. You can't have that mentality. You have to fight on. You have to stay the course. This is a long-term battle. But those who fight for the Lord, they will win. Pilgrim's Progress, I've referenced it many times, and I'll reference it till the day I die. It's one of the best illustrations of Scripture I've ever read. And in that, in that book, Pilgrim comes to Interpreter's house and he's showing him different scenes and he shows him this final scene and there's this castle and the castle is fortified and the gates are closed and in between the castle and, and where he was and where a table was, there was a, a horde of evil, mean, uh, ghastly figures that were uh, armed to the, to the hilt, ready to fight war. And there was a group of people standing further away and they were talking, should they go? Should they make the attempt to try to get in in the castle? And nobody would do it. And then all of a sudden, interpreter says, we're told uh, by, uh, that the interpreter was telling him that those who come up and put their names on the list are then those who enter into the fight. And the group of them wouldn't, but we're told one man did. And he came up to the man overseeing the table, and he says, set down my name, sir. He didn't say, well, go ahead and put my name. Pencil me in, right? Set down my name, sir. There was a resolve there. And then we see that resolve tested. He begins with his sword to hack his way through, the, through the, the hundreds of enemies. And we're told, we're told that he was swinging and fighting and hacking away and that he was wounding and being wounded. And that's the most wonderful statement, I think, in, in most of the whole thing is that he was wounding and being wounded. But he fought on. 
And after fighting and fighting and fighting, he made it to the gate. And the, those, the crowd inside, the congregation inside of the castle said, Come in, come in. Eternal glory, thou shalt win. John Bunyan was so, showing us the, a side of, of salvation, a side of uh, pilgrimage in this life as Christians as a side of effort and battle. There's another side of it that Bunyan gives to us as well in terms of, of God undergirding Christian all the way through it. But that's not what we're thinking of right this moment. We're thinking of you. It's your call to fight on. Fight. Because Christ fought for you and has won. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for mercy, for kindness. We're grateful that you have brought us into your family and that there are there are there's room for all, no matter on the spectrum of faith and in terms of spectrum of, of strength, uh, the the spectrum of of godliness that you welcome all who come to Jesus Christ in your, into your family. We thank you for this, and may that encourage us all today. In Jesus' name, Amen.